From Argentina to El Salvador to Bosnia, she's uncovered the dark truth behind some of the world's most horrific war crimes. Forensic anthropologist Mercedes Doretti. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This is One on One. Mercedes Loretti, one of the co-founders of the Argentinian Forensic Anthropology Team. Most people would know you because you're considered a human rights hero. <laughs> I know that's probably hard for you, but the work that you do basically consists in going and uncovering mass graves where people have been murdered, tortured, and you basically give a response to family members. It's called Forensic Anthropology. How did you start in this kind of work? Um, I started um, almost 25 years ago in Argentina, where I'm from, um, right after democracy returned to Argentina, uh, after the last military government that we had there, where approximately 10,000 people disappeared. So what year are we talking about now? 84. 1984. Yeah. You're, a, you're a university student. I was in my last year, yeah, before graduation in anthropology. and. Um, Right after democracy returned, there was a lot of exhumations on cemeteries, on the Joe and, and Jane Doe areas, uh, where people knew that the bodies of disappeared people had been buried over the years. But it was very badly done, just with no techniques whatsoever, just with bulldozers and cemetery keepers doing the work. So after a few months of really not going anywhere with that, um, the um, the tr a truth commission that existed there and some local human rights organizations called uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. There was a human rights department there and Eric Strober, who was uh, at the time there, organized a group of scientists that came to Argentina. Among them was Dr. Clyde Snow. Uh, he was actually our mentor and the mentor of, of almost everybody working here. But when Clyde Snow, yeah. who is basically the father of forensic anthropology, when he first comes to Buenos Aires, to Argentina. Your reaction back then was, who is this guy coming from the United States who's gonna go in and try to go into um, unmarked graves and find the skeletons of the disappeared? I mean, you thought he was really crazy. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because essentially at that point, you were challenging the entire governmental system, the interpretation of the history of, uh, of Argentina under a dictatorship. You were challenging the people in power at that time? Well, uh, we basically, I, I was a student, uh, we were not doing other, anything other than going to demonstrations and, and supporting human rights groups and supporting their agenda and, you know, sometimes doing some graffitis on the walls and things of that sort, but never actually doing anything from the professional side on, on, um, on the fight for human rights. Um, so when Dr. Snow came to Argentina, he first asked for graduate people to archaeologists and anthropologists to intervene and start participating on the exhumation of, of, of remains and their analysis. Graduate people didn't want to participate, so he started calling for students. They didn't want to participate because they were afraid? Um, it wasn't clear at the time, but they, they, they also thought, who is this person? You know, what is his purpose here? Uh, uh, applying archaeology to, to you know, these political crimes? We've never seen that before. You know, we don't know what he's talking about. You know, nobody I've heard about forensic anthropology 
or even that the idea that anthropology could be working under a forensic context. So, um, but let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. You grew up under the military dictatorship in Argentina. Right. And there were times during that, that, that episode of the dictatorship when there was a denial that there had been human rights abuses, that people had been disappeared. But you were very clear that, yes, there had been political crimes committed, and you did want to help solve them? I was very clear that the, that about what happened, mostly because my mother is a journalist, and so she started receiving information about what was going on very early on the dictatorship. And so through her, uh, we were receiving a lot of information about what was going on. But I had never thought that I could do something on my professional life to, to work on that. I thought I could do what I was doing, which was basically you know going to demonstrations, supporting them in different ways, but that was about it. I never thought that I could combine my professional life with that. So when you get the call of, you know, will you participate and go and dig up a grave and try to find out what happened to this disappeared person, what made you say yes? Basically that I couldn't say no. <laughs> Uh, I, we, we, after we met with Dr. Snow um, on his uh, hotel uh, and he explained us what he wanted to do, uh, we asked him for a couple of days to think about it. And, um, and we met among ourselves and, uh, and we, uh, not, we were, you know, we have all kind of fears and things. I mean, the, the country was very unstable at the time. There were all, all these military uprisings going on. And, uh, so you actually thought that by doing this, this would be interpreted as a political act and you could be putting your own life in danger. Exactly. That was one of the things that we realized, okay, we survived that dictatorship. If we get involved into this, we know that we will have to go, basically, and, uh, or something like that, uh, if another uh, military government comes. And you have to understand that now it's, it's unthinkable that another, we will have another military coup, but since the 1930s up until, you know, the 80s, every democratic government was uh, mostly interrupted by a military coup. So um, it was, that was the way we lived in a way. So take me back to the first time um, that you go into um, a mass grave. This is in Argentina. Yeah, uh, that was the other thing. None of us knew how we were going to feel. On, you know, one thing is to go to an archaeological site of thousands of years old, and then a different thing is just to get into you know, a cemetery and start digging, you know, a grave. And especially dig digging up graves that may have been of young women, just like yourself, who were murdered and disappeared. That, and, and then also a general fear of, are we, I mean, I'm not religious, but, but are we desecrating something? Are we, you know, it was just, you know, we never thought actually on doing something like that. And so it was, I think, uh, a mystery for each of us until we actually did the first grave. Um, it was an individual grave um, in, in a cemetery on the outskirts of Buenos Aires. And um, I discovered to my own surprise that I was able to work, uh, that I was very concentrated on all the details that we had to do, and that I was able to do it, and that I was, I was okay, you know. What do you think that's about for you? I think that each of us may have an area where you can do things that you, and you may not be able to do other things. Like I can do this, but I cannot work on an emergency room or I cannot take care of sick children or, or old people or you know, people in pain. But I discovered I could do this, be very concentrated, very focused. And it doesn't mean that you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you don't feel, you know, uh, and you don't think about 
you know, all the horrors that are behind what you're doing, but that you're able to, that your defense mechanisms or something work at that moment and that place, and you're able to work. When you first started in the work, um, you saw this as really uncovering the remains of the dead. This was all about kind of piecing together the, the death of this person. But now that you've been doing this for over 20 years, something else, you see something else happening. It's not so much about the dead, it's for the living. Well, I think that I was overwhelmed by the, by the death uh, initially, about what this means and, and, uh, and so on. And, I, I, and also I was very ignorant about all that was involving the, the political crimes in general. And so uh, by being exposed to talking to the families, to, uh, to hear what they have to say, to understand what it means not to have the remains of uh, the person, one of your loved ones, not to know what happened, not to have justice also about it, um, more and more um, made me understand that we are basically mostly working for the living and not for the dead. I mean, we're, and what we're doing for the dead, in, it's mostly, I think, to um, bring them back to our society in the, in the sense of finally allowing him or her to ha to die in the proper way in the sense of having a grave or of, of following the you know the culture way of, of dying it's interesting because many people in this country um, this notion of the disappeared people who have disappeared los desaparecidos um, i would say up until the year 2001 was something of a foreign concept and then for people who spent time in new york suddenly Everywhere around New York City, you had these signs that disappeared. This person has disappeared. And um, suddenly, having somebody who has disappeared became a part of our American reality. I mean, you live in New York. It must have been quite strange for you. It was, it was very strange. And immediately, of course, I started drawing parallels and stuff. Because before, it was like, OK, I'm going to this you know, faraway countries to where these awful crimes and, and people have this problem of, of disappeared people. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I was also walking the streets of New York with all these signs that you said. And, and, uh, and here, and I was reading all the time on the newspapers what the families were saying about how, what were they feeling about not having the remains and so on. And it was, you know, very much the same words that the families of political disappearances would say, except that here they have all the support of the state and all the apparatus of all the medical examiner's office, everything was put at their service to try to at least give them a little piece of, of the remains of their loved ones, which I think it is the right way. While in political crimes, what we often have is exactly the opposite situation. In fact, one of the, the countries that you have said has affected you the most was El Salvador. Yes. And precisely the massacre of El Mozote that happened in El Salvador. When you first go down in what year? 91 was the first time we went. And you go down and essentially the government says to you, you're not going to exhume any graves. You're not going to dig up any bodies. There was, they even said to you that there wasn't a massacre, right? So you have to take on these governments. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, that's, that's something we also learned, you know, while doing the work, that actually half of what you do in this field is try to get access. Then the other half is actually doing the work. But, you know, you spend an enormous amount of time 
to be able to have access to, uh, to a case, to the remains, to actually be able to work. Um, because the government has to give you permission? Because, well, the government or the court or the Special Commission of Inquiry, whoever is in charge of that jurisdiction has to authorize you to do the job. Otherwise, you'll be tampering with criminal evidence. You know, you always have to work with some kind of legal framework. Um, and also, one of the main things that you want and that the families want and that the human rights organizations want is that this evidence be taken uh, to court. So if you want that, which is, I mean, in addition to identify, the, try to identify the remains, try to provide information about the cause of death, cause of manner of death, is to, to try to get justice for this, you have to follow all those steps. And that's when it gets very difficult. When you found yourself in El Salvador, and, and I've seen pictures of you, um, which are really, Mimi, uh, just extraordinary because they're you essentially standing inside a, a mass grave. Um, those, I, I don't know. I still say I don't know how you do it. I just don't know. But in El Salvador, what happened? Was was shocking. I mean, for, for all of us, for all the members of the team that participated there, because uh, we, when we were taking testimony, which is the first thing we always do, we do this preliminary investigation about interviewing families, survivors, witnesses, we visited the possible grave uh, burial sites and so on. They were saying, you know, how many, we were asking them how many people in your family died, and, uh, and they would say 12 or 16 or 15 or 20, and I was like, no, 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 direct members of your family, children, and they were like, yes, direct members of my family. And so they will go on saying, my six children, my wife, my father, my mother, and so on. We were, we just couldn't understand, you know, it was, it was absolutely new. We didn't have any experience on that. And uh, it was very difficult. Uh, and also, uh, we have never, I mean, I had to exhume the remains of, of pregnant women, but I've never worked on a grave as we had to work on the, that we'll have uh, 100, more than 130 remains of children on a small room. That was very difficult, very, very difficult. Mimi, you know? what do you do in that moment? I mean, at that place when you are standing in a mass grave with you know, dozens of, of, of children's skeletons, where do you find the strength? Well, partly I think we, I always work on a team. I don't work by myself, so we, we talk a lot between us. And uh, you know, after work, before the work, um, um, we're all very much the same. And since when we're working, we're, there's so many things to take care of that I think that helps you to go through the process because there's so many details that your mind has to concentrate on. That you you see other things, you feel other things, but you just kind of leave them for later in a way. Um, then the other thing is that we always work at the request of other people. So, you know, there's always families waiting for us, NGOs, local human rights organizations there. Uh, like in the case of El Mosote, also very courageous journalists like Alma Guillermo Prieto, Susan Maicelas, Raymond Bonner, that precede us. And I had that in mind all the time, that I was scared and I was, you know, overwhelmed by the whole work. But at the same time, there was all these people there that have uh, risked their life much more than, than, than I was doing and that have been so courageous that I should just deal with my fear by myself. I shouldn't, you know. Uh, Get with it, just do it. You know, deal with it, which doesn't mean I'm not taking it serious, but um, that they accompany you in a way. You know, you're not alone doing this. It's in particular with El Mosote in El Salvador and the massacre there, because there had been government denials in El Salvador, even this government, that was heavily involved in El Salvador, 
also was denying that there had been a massacre yes. there. So the work that you're doing essentially is really truth-telling in a lot of ways. Huge responsibility. Huge responsibility, yeah. And when you are able to say to a government, look, here are the remains of 100 or 200 you know, skeletons here, people, you cannot deny that there was a massacre. Suddenly, you have the power. Do you feel that way? Um, I, I think that we play an important role. I think that physical evidence, it's, it's very important sometimes to establish what happened and, and, and that uh, sometimes end controversies, like in the case of El Mosote, you know, that was overwhelmingly, particularly when we found that, that grave of the, where the children were, um, that the evidence was so strong that there wasn't anything else that uh, could be said about it. Um, but many other times, you don't find enough evidence, uh, you don't have access, or you find the evidence and it's, uh, there's no justice whatsoever. There's, you know, in most of these countries, there's amnesty laws that are there in place, you know, and, and they stop any kind of prosecution. So you always have both things. You feel sometimes very powerful and very proud and very, you know, um, you know, with a lot of satisfaction of what you're doing. At the same time, you always have the, you know, the big picture of, you know, what you're doing, that it's just one part of the whole process. And so in this day and age in our country now, when you hear talk about torture and what's accepted, uh, is it torture, is it not torture, what goes on for you? If I can be honest, I get very angry because I'm not willing to discuss, you know, these differences. If this, basically all that I'm reading is tortured. It's uh, these nuances about if more on, you know, uh, water, less water, you know, more noise, less noise. I mean, when I grew up in Argentina under a dictatorship, that was the, those were the tortures that the militaries were applying. Yeah, they would call it dry submarine, wet submarine, the submersion of prisoners under, under water, and that was considered tortured. And though, except that they would do it, it was done by a military regime. So I, I can't believe sometimes when I read the newspaper and there is a discussion about it. That should be, it's, you know, absolutely not not be allowed at all. And when mm. you stand back and you look at the world that we're living in now, you were in Iraq after the first Gulf War. It's not as if your work is going to end. You know what I'm saying? There's not a light at the end of the tunnel that says, okay, there, and therefore, you know, come this year, there will be no more, you know, torture and, and, and political killings. So when you see the world around you, where, where are you thinking that you may end up next? Um... I don't know. <laughs> You've been to Africa, yeah. Bosnia, yeah. Uh, Central America, Argentina, Mexico on the border. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what, what I'm trying to think more is not that much where I'm going to be, but what are the things that we can um, help create so that more accountability, more independent investigations uh, are you know, happening on, on these cases. That's where uh, the team is focusing now more. For example, uh, on the scientific side, we're using all the, a lot of new technology was developed uh, to identify the victims of September 11 and of the, of the war in the Balkans, uh, of genetic technology. And so we're using now that on the new program that we just launched in Argentina, and it was also together with a team in Guatemala and another one in Peru, um, making a, um, 
major effort that have never been done before in our country to identify the remains that we know belong to disappeared people or we were almost sure that they belong to them but we don't know who they are. Uh, basically it's a massive comparison between skeletal remains and thousands of, of, of families of disappeared people. We just, we just launched that, that campaign with a big grant that we received um, from the U.S. Congress. Exactly. So um, they also within this grant, there is the possibility to uh, install a local genetic laboratory that we're just in the process of building it up. So the idea would be that uh, not that laboratory will be used on the second year, uh, not only to process um, Argentinian cases, but eventually to start processing cases from other countries where we also work and bring geneticians from those countries as well to be trained or help on their training at our laboratory as well. So um, with, if this works okay, we're going to try to see uh, how this may help in other uh, places like in Asia or Africa where we've been working already for more than 15 years with different non-governmental organizations there as well and you know, try to expand it so that they can also have access to So to the long-term impact of your work, Mimi Doretti, is what? As you said, if you look at history, there is no reason to believe that this is not going to continue happening. But I think what we can do is to try to improve the mechanisms for accountability, for justice, and, uh, and for family rights that are, you know, uh, the affected communities and the affected families by this. So where, where, do, where does the kind of work that you do stand in the context of human rights work in general? Um, by providing physical evidence. I think that's our, our main role. Um, before uh, the use of forensic sciences into human rights investigations, or I would say before the large use of it, because it was um, used in the past, but let's say on the last 25, 30 years more or less, it was mostly human rights cases were mostly using testimonial evidence. Human rights organizations were mostly using the word of witnesses, of survivors. By adding physical evidence to that, often you can uh, provide a much stronger voice to, to what they have w about what happened. So I think our role within that movement is that, is that to, you know, nowadays it's very common that all United Nations missions or uh, international tribunals include forensic people in their teams. That wasn't the case 30 years ago. So this, this field of forensic anthropology, I mean, I don't watch CSI, <laughs> but I know people do and it's a huge hit, but yeah. it's all about precisely what you're talking about. It's the science of understanding um, how a person dies. So is this a field that you can say, I'm proud of the fact that this is a field that's growing? What I'm proud is that finally anthropology, together with other forensic sciences, because forensic anthropology only works with one part of the whole uh, complex of sciences that are applied on a crime, on a crime scene, uh, it's, anthropology is finally playing a role on this area. Uh, not that it's expanding, you know, uh, itself, but that it, it had a lot to offer it and, and, and it wasn't using it. And so I'm very proud that finally anthropologists are getting involved in this. So what comes next? Uh, well, I'm going next to Ciudad Juarez again, to Mexico. We've been working there for the last three years. For people who don't know, this is a site of several hundred, more than 400 women, teenage girls and women who have been murdered with no, no one held accountable at this point? Uh, in some cases, yes, in some other ones, no. Uh, we're working from that, that large group of women among the ones that have not been identified, the remains that have not been identified, and in cases where families have doubt about the remains that they have received, which is approximately 25% of the total. And besides Ciudad Juarez, where else? 
we're organizing a large meeting in Asia for the second part of the year at the request also of, an, of the Asian Federation of uh, Associations of Disappeared People that nucleates um, the seven countries in Asia. So the idea there is to have a meeting with Asian forensic people and Asian NGOs uh, in the same place and not only provide training but also uh, try to form a network of forensic people that will be willing to work with the families on, on, on the countries on each of their each of their cases. So, um, Mimi Doretti, when you know when you look back and you say you know you've gotten this Reebok Human Rights Award, you've got the MacArthur Genius Grant for your work, um, and people have called you a human rights heroine. Um, what do you take from that? Um, well, it's 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 great to have recognition. It's great to have these awards. It helps a lot. Um, it, it helps in in many different ways. Absolutely, and I'm very you know honored that they, they, they gave us this award. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm always concentrating on where, where are we going next? How we, you know, where is our work going? Uh, what are we doing? Because you can sometimes lose yourself on like doing one case after the other one, after the other one, after the other one, as if you're, you know, just going to the next fire kind of. And um, I always try not to get into that and try to uh, have a different uh, view of it. Um, um, I, I'm, I mostly feel I'm, I'm very fortunate about doing what I do. I feel very happy to do what I do. I feel there's very few people that actually do what they like in life and that they feel that what they believe, you know, the work, it's, it's consistent with, the, with what they believe. And I just, you know, that for me is the most important thing. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, okay. You know. <laughs> well, for your work, Mercedes Doretti, thank you so much. With the Argentine Forensic Anthropology Team, all of your work, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. For more information about this program, visit our website.